This podcast represents the views of the hosts and not the University of Texas at Austin. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with people who are shaping and have helped shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. I'm Bill Shute, Executive Director of the LBJ Washington Center, and I'll be your host for this series as we hear from four Texas-based policy experts and historians who will frame today's political environment with the help of lessons learned in the past. Our third episode features a conversation with Dr. Jeremy Surrey, the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership and Global Affairs at UT. Jeremy's a prolific writer whose latest book is entitled Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Hey, thanks for joining me here, Jeremy. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for doing this. Happy to. And you know what? I really enjoyed our conversation at the Washington Center and the insights from your book in particular, linking the policy missteps of the decades immediately following the Civil War to what we face today. So before we turn to that conversation, let's set the table a bit here for our listeners. Uh, As everyone's well aware, there have been so many incidents of racial injustice over the last decade. As you watched these unfold, was there a specific moment where you decided to write this book? There wasn't a specific moment, but there were uh, a layering of experiences. And I should say a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in New York City, uh, studied at uh, Stanford and Yale, taught at the University of Wisconsin before coming to the University of Texas, before I found my home in Austin. And um, coming to Texas 10 years ago, what immediately struck me was how different the politics uh, in the South are. Um, But more than that, even how resonant with each passing year, certain language about race, certain language about um, the exclusion of people, uh, certain language about anger towards uh, elites and people who looked different from traditional Texans and traditional people living. This is true in Wisconsin too. Uh, this, This anger towards a new, more diverse country. Uh, that I think has been exploited by uh, people running for the Senate, people running for president long before Donald Trump. Uh, That struck me, and it struck me that that language was out of tune with the language of globalization, the language of diversity, the language of open markets, free trade, liberal internationalism, the language I had written about in other books and that we had studied. And that, that led me, um, watching those politics, to really try to find the historical roots for this alternative language, which at that time seemed as if it was more fringe, but became more and more popular over the last decade. And to understand where the language came from, which is, of course, after the Civil War, and why it grew in popularity, which is also explained by the years after the Civil War. So it's it's been learning to live in Texas in some ways and understand that part of our country that led me to ask new questions as a historian and as a policy analyst, and that led me to write this book. Well, Dr. Surrey and I will return to the conclusion of our recorded conversation, so let's get started. Welcome all to the Washington Center of the LBJ School of Public Affairs. This is a wonderful book. I was pleased to read it. It's Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. I had the pleasure to chat with Peniel in the same room when his new book, Third Reconstruction, sure, came it's out. A great book. It's a great Wonderful book about how a lot of the mistakes and the missteps during the Reconstruction have tended to reverberate and echo through the past 150 years. What I really enjoyed about your book is that it's a wonderful deep dive into those missteps. Right. It explains a lot of what happened during that period that literally got us to where we are today. Right. right. Before we do a, a deeper look at the book, in your mind, what are some of the 20th and 21st century examples of how we're still dealing with those missteps? Well, we just, we just lived through one reverberation of this period uh, in our midterm elections, which is the voting system we have, such as it is. Uh, We are so 19th century in the way we vote in this country. It's exactly how the system was designed to make it hard for certain people to vote in the 1870s that I talk about in the book that still defines uh, how we vote today. So in order to vote, you have to register, you have to provide identification showing who you are, 
And there were all kinds of hoops you have to go through. Uh, for my daughter, for example, who wanted to register to vote absentee because she's at the University of Wisconsin, uh, she had to call twice to the clerk, send all kinds of information in. And uh, after October 11th, if she hadn't uh, been able to register by that time, she would not be able to vote. So on October 16th, I had one of my undergraduates who came up to me, this happens every election year, and said she was delighted she was now 18 and she wanted to vote and she wanted me to explain to her how she registers to vote on October 16th. And I had to say to her, uh, I'm sorry, you can't register now. But if you'd like to buy a gun, you can go buy a gun. There's yeah. no problem there. Yeah. Um, th these are not bugs of the system. What I'm showing in the book uh, is that this is exactly how the system was designed after the Civil War to make it hard for certain people to vote and to provide more control for those who had traditionally controlled the democratic suffrage within our society. The 15th Amendment in 1870 is intentionally written to say you cannot deny someone the vote based on race, but to leave many, many openings for other ways of denying people the right to vote. And the same is true for the 19th Amendment in 1920 and the 26th Amendment in 1971, which gives 18-year-olds the right to vote. So that's, that, that's one example. Most other democracies have the kinds of protection for voting that we have for speech. We've intentionally not done that. And that's an outgrowth uh, of this period. It affects everything. Cool. Gerrymandering is another version of that. Uh, one other example I'll give, uh, some, I, I wrote about this very specifically also in, in Time Magazine. Um, we have a lot of violence, political violence, that's tolerated in our society. We are not a peaceful democracy. Some of that is the dynamism of our society. Uh, but violence, uh, need I remind you, of January 6th, or the gentleman who broke into Nancy Pelosi's house and uh, caused apparently very serious damage uh, to Paul Pelosi. Um, his um, his uh, affidavit, uh, which you can read online after he was arrested, he said, uh, he used words that come directly out of the book. The book had already been written, so I, I didn't anticipate this. He said, I wanted to break her knees, Nancy Pelosi, actually he just calls her Nancy, as if she's on a first name basis mm -hmm. with her, right? right? I wanted to break Nancy's knees, is what he told the police after the event. And I wanted to wheel her into Congress so all the Democrats would know that there were consequences to their action. In the book, I quote Ben Tillman in South Carolina, who in 1871 said, I want to break off all the arms of all the African Americans and Jews who vote in South Carolina so other African Americans and Jews will know that they shouldn't vote. Uh, ben Tillman was never prosecuted for saying those things. In fact, he was elected governor and then elected senator. Yeah. Uh, that, that violence, that rhetoric and action that we're seeing today, Bill, I mean, your question's yeah. a great question. It, it's, it's a continued outgrowth of that. And until we actually take action to prohibit and prosecute that kind of violence, it's going to continue. So the, in all these areas, voting, political violence, gerrymandering, we're living with the 1870s. That's, yeah. that's the argument of the book. That's a great segue to the first question I wanted to ask you, really. It's a, you open up the book with a great line which says, worries about a new civil war in America are misplaced because the civil war has not ended. Right. Yeah. You start off by looking at the assassination of Lincoln and how John Wilkes Booth becomes a martyr to the gendry South. Right. The, uh, what struck me as one of the early examples of how Reconstruction was starting to crumble was the stories you tell of many Confederate soldiers and some very top generals who chose exile in Mexico yes. rather than surrender. Yes. And they thrive because they've got the patronage of the emperor, yes. Maximilian. Yeah. But when he is executed and Juarez government takes over again, these traitors basically escorted back to the states with free rides on naval ships. Yep. There was right. no repercussion. That's exactly right. That's exa you know, to me, this was one of the most interesting parts of doing this research, um, was the parts of the story that haven't been told, even by other historians. And, and this book was a journey for me. Uh, most of the other books I've written have had more of a 20th century focus. They've been more focused on traditional politics and policymaking. I came to write this book uh, because I was shaken by the last five to six years, seeing how precarious elements of our democracy are and were, more so than I even anticipated as a historian. I shouldn't admit that, <laughs> but I was naive myself. My own historical understanding was limited, even though I'm a professional historian. And um, one of the things that's so striking as you do this research and dig into it 
are the number of uh, individuals who were responsible for horrible actions who then became powerful within our society after that. And this group of exiles, this is chapter three in the book, uh, almost every event I do, it's the one that we end up focusing on. I think it's the one that fascinates us. It's a powerful us. story. It is. It's a, it's a fascinating story, yeah. isn't it? Uh, there are 50,000 um, members of the Confederacy, mostly Confederate leaders, army officers, generals, and others, who instead of surrendering after Appomattox, actually go to Mexico. There's actually an even larger number that go to Brazil. I focus on those who go to Mexico. Uh, and the, of those who go to Mexico, many of them are figures who are revered within the Confederacy. We have forgotten their names. Joseph Shelby, John Bankhead Magruder, uh, Alexander Watkins Terrell. But they're revered within the Confederacy, so they're examples and inspirations for people who don't want to surrender. They join Maximilian's army. They join this French-imposed emperor's army in Mexico. That's the textbook definition of treason. If you join a foreign army, that's treason to your own army, to your own country. Um, and then when he's defeated and the French pull out, they come back to the US and they declare themselves heroes. And uh, when I, I've been doing a ton of events around Texas, in particular Houston and Dallas, and I've been asking this question I'm going to ask now, and it's surprising to me how few people can answer this in Texas. It won't be surprising if you don't know here because it's not your history in Washington or in the East Coast. It's certainly not what I learned in New York City. But uh, how, how many people here have heard of Alexander Watkins Terrell? So you, you had heard of him? How, how did you? Very vaguely, like I could not explain anything, but the name I know sticks with me. Well, there's Terrell County. Right. It's Terrell County in Texas. And Alexander Watkins Terrell was actually one of the writers of the legislation to create the University of Texas. And I'm thinking of the county. So Terrell um, is a judge in Harris County, joins the Confederate Army. He's made a general. He was not actually a good military leader, but if you were a, ju if you were a judge in this Confederacy, they made you a general. He then uh, goes south, actually joins Maximilian's spying agency, spying on the United States. When Maximilian is killed, when Juarez's government comes back into power, Terrell comes back to the United States and he gets elected to the Texas legislature. That would never happen today, right? We would never elect an indicted person as attorney general in Texas. No. I mean, that's in unthinkable. We'd wait until they were elected to get exactly. them indicted. Exactly, I mean, we never. So um, he's elected after committed tre committing treason, really twice, if you consider secession treason, too. But certainly joining a French-installed emperor's army in the South, in Mexico, is certainly treason. He's elected to the Texas, to, to the Texas Senate. Uh, he becomes a leader of the Democratic Party, which is the only party in Texas. He writes the legislation to create the University of Texas. He writes the voting laws. So April, you might have heard of him also if you heard of the Terrell voting laws. Uh, which is what the voting laws of Texas were called until the mid-20th century, because he wrote them. Who do you think he excluded from voting? Mm. He created the white primary. How many people have heard of the white primary? <laughs> the white primary was uh, legal restrictions on anyone non-white voting in the Texas Democratic Party primary. Lyndon Johnson's first primary was a white primary. He did not, he could not by law have a non-white challenger or any non-white voters. Uh, it took until 1944, Supreme Court decision Smith versus Allwright, when Robert Jackson on the Supreme Court, who later goes on to lead uh, American prosecution at Nuremberg, Jackson prohibits this practice. It took till the 1950s. You might ask, how did Texas get away with this? Well, uh, they claimed that the Democratic primary was not an election, so the 15th Amendment didn't count. Right? It was like choosing the leader of your golf club. You didn't have to let everyone participate. So even if you could vote, vote as an African-American in Austin, as you could in the 1930s, you had no choice in the candidates. And it's all linked back to this group of Confederates who not only lose the war, but refuse to surrender. They're the guys who also built the statues. Nor did they have to swear to loyalty, did That's, they? They did not. Yeah. They were pardoned by Andrew Johnson. So the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits those who have committed treason, or violated the Constitution from running for public office, but since they were pardoned by Andrew Johnson, yeah. um, they all are able to uh, run for office. And one of the problems is that the losers of the war, of the Civil War, become the leaders in the South again, and not just in the South, in the West. And one of the takeaways, I think, uh, from this is you cannot just forgive and forget. 
those who break the law must be held accountable, otherwise they will continue to break the law, which is exactly what happened. You know, so many of the hard-fought victories from the battlefield did start to unravel under Andrew Johnson. Yes. Project for us, speculate if you would, how Reconstruction might have gone differently if Lincoln hadn't taken the, the political easy out by appointing Johnson as vice president? It's a great question. Um, also, I mean, it's the one that we that everyone asks as well. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Uh, so things would have been hard for Lincoln if he had left with all of his enormous skills. Uh, he was still hated by half the country, of course. And it's interesting, our most effective and popular leaders are hated by half the country, the point I made in the, in the Times this weekend. Uh, so we shouldn't be waiting for some Messiah to arrive who will unite us all. There's, there's no such moment. Maybe George Washington. Uh, certainly not Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, right? Uh, so um, Lincoln would have had a high hurdle in bringing the country together uh, because all these sources of resistance would have been there. And uh, the federal government had very limited powers. One of the problems in the story, one of the elements of this, uh, the story that I tell here is, is how the federal government is hamstrung. It has very few tools other than the U.S. military that it can use to actually uh, enforce the law. That's why we're in a very different place today, thanks in part to Lyndon Johnson and the efforts of the civil, right, civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation, et cetera. Um, so Lincoln would have had a very difficult time, but we would have been in a better position with Lincoln as president for at least two reasons if he, if he hadn't been assassinated. One, he would not have pardoned all the Confederates. So many of the individuals, including Alexander Watkins Terrell, would have had a harder time coming back into office. And under the 14th Amendment, just as has happened in New Mexico now, right? There's already mm -hmm. been one official in New Mexico uh, just last year who was ruled ineligible for office because of treasonous behavior, right? All those Confederates would have been prohibited from being in office, which would have made the Democratic Party in Texas and Georgia and Mississippi and South Carolina look very different. Second thing Lincoln uh, would have done is I think Lincoln would have uh, been much more effective at using readmission to the Union to require the states to do more to protect African American, Jewish, immigrant voters, and others. Andrew Johnson made efforts to bring the former Confederate states back into the Union with limited conditions. They still had to take, they still had to affirm the three amendments 13th Amendment, end slavery, 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, natural born citizenship. 15th Amendment, you can't deny the right to vote based on race. So the, they had to approve, they had to ratify those amendments to come back into the Union. Right. But he didn't make them do much else. Lincoln would have put more conditions uh, on that. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, um, Johnson made the argument that because Lincoln refused to recognize that the states had seceded, Lincoln's position was the states can't secede. They didn't exist without the Constitution, they can't secede. Lincoln said they're in rebellion. So Johnson then said, well, since they never seceded, I don't need Congress's approval to bring them back into the mm. Union. And so we have this, that's where Lincoln would have made a difference, yeah, I think. Too clever by half. Exactly. Right. You also point out how, through the annals of history, every democracy has faced and sometimes been built on political violence. Yes. And how the founders tried to prevent that to some extent by the way they created a weak executive branch. But here it seems like we're in a situation where we have a very strong executive, certainly under Lincoln, or a branch in how they were trying to enforce the three right. amendments. But the Democratic Party, the South, they were taking every means they could to take the law in their own hands. What were some of the tactics they were using to kind of get us past what they viewed as a massive failure in the Civil War. Many of the tactics they use today. It was worse uh, then, of course, uh, but many of the tactics that are used today. So uh, the most obvious one is empowering uh, local toughs and local intimidation. Uh, and it's really important that we know this history. Um, just as there were enormous strides that were made by many communities, often led by former slaves, uh, but also many Northern Republicans, many white figures in the South helping uh, and working with African-American communities to build businesses, to build churches, to build uh, in incredible voter participation. There were more African-Americans elected to office in the United States in 1868 than there will be again until 1968. Um, so there's enormous work that's being done. You often hear people say, well, minorities don't vote because they don't want to vote. No, that's not right. That's not right. There's a lot of evidence that when given the opportunity, 
they participate and participate very actively. Um, but what is done uh, at the local level is to f intimidate people from voting, to pressure them not to be involved in one way or another. Uh, and a lot of that is organized violence or the threat of organized violence. And here's what we need to recognize. This is just a historical fact. More often than not, local law enforcement is on the side of the violence toward groups that are trying to participate. I'm not an expert on current policing, and I have a lot of students who have been policed. My cousin, one of my closest relatives, just retired from 25 years in the New York City Police Department. I have a lot of respect for police officers, let me be clear. But this history is a history that still deeply affects our society. It's still built into these institutions, and it also affects the way certain communities view them. Um, so local law enforcement is often not on the side of democratic participation, but the opposite. We have to read. That's just a historical fact. Another thing that local... And oftentimes part of the party machine. Exactly. Quite often. Uh, and then another element of that that's more so in the 1870s and 80s, but we still, uh, we still see today, um, there are all kinds of local laws that are used mm -hmm. to privilege certain kinds of activities. Land ownership is the most obvious one. And anyone who looks at a city like Austin today has to recognize how alive and well uh, that is. Most of our zoning laws, and I'm not against zoning, I don't think Houston gives a better example of that, <laughs> but our zoning laws uh, are largely designed to allow or facilitate certain people to be in certain places and to limit or defacilitate others from being in those places. Austin is a good example of this because it's in a very extreme version. In 1924, where we actually zoned the city so that certain communities had to live on the east side. And the gentrification of the east side is actually the long-term outgrowth of that. Um, DC, is, uh, you can find this throughout DC as well, communities and areas that were zoned for certain, certain, uh, certain people to live and, and others. I remember when we bought our uh, first house, first house I think anyone in my family ever owned in Madison, Wisconsin. I was an assistant professor. And I, I looked at the history of the house. It was built, it was built in 1912 there was an anti-Jewish covenant on the house. Mm. I'm Jewish. <laughs> so much for that. The covenant had never actually been removed. It just wasn't enforced. So in theory, uh, Governor Scott Walker could have, I guess, tried to throw me out of my house if he, yeah, if, if he had wanted. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is the point that um, these local uh, legal zoning maneuvers, uh, they're part of this process of including and excluding in a democracy. Again, I'm not against zoning, but I am for very strict federal regulations right. of how we do that. Now, there was one very inclusive aspect during the Reconstruction era. You know, the, the core, one of the, as you point out, one of the core tenets of the Republican Party in its nascent years was kind of a Horatio Alger yeah. approach to yep. society. You know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you'll get better and you'll, you'll be at the top of the pyramid before long, right? That was pretty much the case with the U.S. Army because they, at one point you point out, they were the largest employer of previously, uh, previous slaves. Absolutely. Slaves, right? Absolutely. What overall was the role of the Army in countering all of this local injustice in the South? Terrific. The, 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 the U.S. Army, first of all, was an engine of mobility. And none of this is to say that the Army was perfect. It still paid its African-American soldiers half to a third of what it paid white soldiers. It put them in, initially kept them out of combat, then put them in the worst combat duty. So don't hear me saying the Army was perfect. Uh, but the US Army in the Civil War, just as in World War II, was an engine of mobility. It was one of the few avenues that was open for those who were former slaves, those who were immigrant Jews coming through San Antonio and elsewhere, to actually become uh, engaged and involved in American society in a way they couldn't before. And it's, a, it's an incredible story. There were four million slaves at the start of the Civil War. Uh, 125,000 or so of them uh, joined the U.S. Army, joined the Union Army. In most cases, they fled, they left their plantations. And this is, by the way, a really important development in the historiography of the last 10 years. Now, I'm not original in saying this at all. <coughs> Historians have found that actually, in almost all cases, slaves knew what was going on. The story used to be told of, you know, even this, the pro-abolitionist story that, you know, the white soldiers arrived and freed the slaves, right? Mm. Uh, white soldiers bravely opened many communities, but slaves knew exactly what was going on. They were very aware, and many, whenever they could, especially when they saw the Union Army coming, they left their, they left their plantations. There's very little evidence of slaves rallying 
to the Confederate side. Very rare do you find that in, in the evidence. Um, so these uh, former slaves, uh, 125,000 or so, joined the Union Army. Uh, and they become, uh, by the end of the war, major figures in the, in the Union Army. They're not only in major combat roles, they're in supervisory roles. What actually triggers John Wilkes Booth to kill Lincoln is that in this city, in DC, it was an African-American regiment that was holding Confederate prisoners of war. And it was an African-American regiment that was part of the protection for Lincoln. And it's when John Wilkes Booth sees that, that he says the world has been too, turned too much upside down. I cannot live in this kind of world. That's actually what triggers Booth uh, and so many others. And, and we should not in any way apologize for that. But just imagine if yourself, what a reversal of expectations that was. Ulysses Grant is, is probably the person who comments on this most eloquently. Mm. He goes into the war, uh, Ulysses Grant, uh, as an anti-Semite and a racist. I mean, he, he embodies what he was taught in Southern <coughs> Illinois and, and Ohio. First area he occupies in the war, he actually excludes Jews from a political office. The Union Army excludes, excludes Jews. He didn't think Jews were loyal. By the end of the war, he has an entirely different view because he has seen, he writes this in his memoirs and his letters. Uh, it's fascinating, it's very rare you see someone have a transformation like this. He sees the courage, the loyalty, what he calls the wisdom and savviness of these communities, of slaves who were illiterate, who now learn to read and write in the army and become courageous, loyal soldiers and wage earners. And the army gives them an opportunity in that sense. It is exactly the same story as World War II. I wrote a book on Henry Kissinger years ago, and Kissinger's part of a community of Jewish immigrants who come to the United States in the late, in the late 1930s. They don't even speak English, but they're put into the US Army. First time Kissinger's not in an Orthodox household, surrounded by German speakers, uh, is when he's actually at a basic training camp in South Carolina. <laughs> and Jews become accepted in US society, just as African Americans like Colin Powell get an anchoring in American society because of their military service during World War II. It's the same story in the Civil War. And it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly heroic story, especially those slaves. I just, I've tried in the book to describe this, and I've tried to imagine it, what it must have been like to go from being an illiterate slave, someone who's never earned, been able to earn money for your work, to now become a wage earner, a literate person, a business owner after the war. Uh, and that happens in months. It's extraordinary. Well, and then, to be put in a position where you have to defend the process in an area where your former oppressors precisely. still own all the guns. Precisely, yeah, precisely. That you're, you're actually the law enforcement. And this, is, this was part of your question that I, I, I neglected to answer. In many cases, they're not only the law enforcement, they're the ones who have to come in and rescue those who are being mistreated. And so I describe in, in detail, it was difficult to write this because it's so disturbing, a number of these cases, such as in Memphis in 1866, where a white mob, um, led by the local police and local judge, um, not only uh, burn and destroy a new African-American community of former slaves, um, they actually publicly rape hundreds of women. Uh, and it's a precursor to lynching, because they're intentionally doing this in public to uh, basically intimidate any African-American male from challenging them in any way. The, the regiment, the Union Army regiment that's there that eventually, much too late, steps in is an African-American regiment. Uh, the white commander doesn't bring them to stop the ride until the third day. And later when he's investigated, uh, he says he was uncomfortable having his black soldiers put down the violence of the white. He's actually, to the credit of the Congress at that time, he's actually court-martialed. Mm. Uh, that general. By the way, these sorts of events like the Memphis riot in 1866, there's a coup against an African-American government in Colfax. People say we didn't have coups before January 6th. We had coups all throughout these areas. A lot of this violence uh, and the testimony from the victims we have because of congressional investigations. Uh, our library is filled uh, with these old bound volumes of these long, you know, they're usually boring, right? Congressional <laughs> investigations. These are not boring at all because they're filled with the testimony often from illiterate women who have been mistreated. Um, it's there because Congress investigated. I'm often asked, you know, why do we do investigations? Why are we doing a January 6th investigation? Someone from Reuters asked me that the other day, and I said, well, because even if we can't change things now, we're creating a historical record. 
a record that can be used, right? The January 6th committee is crucial for that reason, among many others. Very good. Tell us about the impact on civil rights of the Panic of 1873. So the Panic of 1873, you're a close reader. I love it, Bill. Uh, the, the, the Panic of 1873 uh, occurs because of uh, over-speculation and over-investment in the railroads in particular. Very similar to what we experienced in 2007, 2008, 2009. That was over-investment in real estate. Capitalism is a system of booms and busts. And what we try to do, what Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson tried to do, were create certain guideposts mm -hmm. to limit the damage during the bust period, but knowing there's going to be a bust period, right? And uh, 1873 uh, is when the market failed because there had been so much investment in railway uh, building, particularly railways going to the west, which was a great way to make money for those who were the investors, but also those who were the builders of the railways. And this is why they brought in Chinese labor and other uh, mistreated labor to sort of at low cost build these railways. They overbuilt the rail lines. There were not enough people to take the trains. <laughs> and so uh, they couldn't recap the same problem Elon Musk is about to have, right? They couldn't actually generate the revenue to cover their debt. Uh, as soon as the banks realized that the railways they had invested money in, just as they put money into Twitter now, right? Just as soon as they realized they couldn't get that money back, they started foreclosing on properties to sell things off at 10 cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar. And that, of course, causes all the stocks to tumble. Everything becomes less valuable as a consequence. That's happened with Twitter stock now and uh, with Tesla stock as well. And so, just uh, use Bitcoin as an example. Exactly, exactly right, yeah. Which I've never still fully understood how that works. Um, so w what happens as a consequence, uh, the economy in the North, that had actually been doing quite well after the Civil War, goes into a tailspin, goes into a deflationary spiral. It's, 1873 is about as bad as the Great Depression. Uh, stores close, banks close, people are out of jobs. And it's a great question because this makes it very hard for Ulysses Grant, who's then president, to actually convince his own party, the Northern Republicans, who control both houses of Congress. They have two-thirds in both houses. They control the Supreme Court, by the way, because they have redesigned the Supreme Court. Uh, that was considered constitutional then, as it would be now. They've redesigned the, the Supreme Court. They control everything, but because of the Depression, they don't want to spend any money in the South. And so that, in some ways, is the end to, to, to Ulysses Grant's efforts to enforce the law in the South. Ulysses Grant created the Justice Department. The Justice Department that Merrick Garland uh, now oversees was created by Ulysses Grant. There was no Justice Department before then. There was just an attorney general, basically just an attorney for the country. The Justice Department was created to enforce civil rights laws in the South. And we have the roots of the FBI. Correct, exactly. The roots of the FBI and trying to create federal law enforcement. Uh, the Justice Department is defunded by Grant's own party. And that's the word they use, defund, because of the Depression. Northerners, uh, senators from Ohio like John Sherman, Lyman Trumbull from Illinois say, we, we're not going to throw any more money into the South. They said, we're not going to throw any more money into this. We need to keep our money for our uses in our states. So it's impossible then for them to enforce the law. So the, the panic, uh, just as happened in 2008, 2009, it, it, it enables more bad behavior. Yeah. Speaking of bad behavior, while we're in the 1870s. Oh, I thought you were talking about me. <laughs> The, eight, the presidential election of 1876 is yes. a fascinating one, and I, yeah. uh, of course, have known a lot of the aspects of this, but you come at it from a unique perspective that it was really interesting to read about. Thank you. Thank you. And for those that don't know, you can give us a little synopsis of why this is an important election, but you point out that there was a lot of talk about violent insurrection. Yes. And I was yes. curious if, after you explain the process of 1876, the parallels between that and January 6th. Terrific. Uh, so one of the things we have to recognize, just as our voting is so 19th century, our elections are also so 19th century. Uh, and our election system has never worked, never worked well. I mean, that's the whole problem with Jefferson and Burr in 1800, right? That they're actually both tied. Burr later commits insurrection himself. Mm -hmm. He was almost president of the United States, 1824. Right, John um, Jackson, Andrew Jackson wins more votes than John Quincy Adams, but yet John Quincy Adams becomes president. So we, we've had this corrupt problem. Bargain. The corrupt bargain. Uh, so in 1876, Samuel Tilden is the governor of New York, Democratic governor of New York. New York City is actually very Democrat, very pro-Confederate. 
And New York City is very, again, I wasn't taught that growing up in New York City, but it's true. Why is New York City so pro-Confederate? Because all that wealth is from the exporting of cotton and the financing of that. So New York is as tight. In some ways, you have to think of New York as a southern city in many respects. Boston's different. Boston's not as tied to that economy. The New York wealth is the financing of cotton and then the financing of the railroads <coughs> going, going west. Just as New York wealth today is the financing of tech, right? Austin and New York are actually very closely related. People everyone talks about California and Austin. It's actually New York. Where, where do you think the money is coming from yeah. for all the, tech, all the tech companies? So um, in 1876, Samuel Tilden, governor of New York, Democratic governor of New York, runs for president against Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford B. Hayes is the governor of Ohio. And the way to become president in the 19th century was to be from Ohio. Recurringly, five presidents out of six from Ohio. Um, just as maybe now it's to be the governor of Michigan. Who knows, right? Um, so uh, Tilden and Hayes run, for, run against one another. Hayes is a hero from the Civil War. He is a Union soldier, highly regarded by many, and an excellent governor of Ohio, uh, and an uncorruptible person. He's a man of great integrity. Uh, but the problem is that uh, Hayes believes that the Northern Republican Party has to get back to the work of enforcing the law in the South, and that Grant hasn't done enough of that. Uh, Samuel Tilden runs as the Democrat from New York, saying it's time the country gets back to making money and not worrying about these things, right? No one would say that today, right? Uh, he said, Tilden doesn't say this, but you can read what he's saying is, Basically, the Republicans are too woke. Let's just go back. Let's just get back to business. Our job is business. It's a very powerful. It's always been a powerful argument in the United States, right? Even for people who aren't prejudiced, right? It's you know we should be doing business. Don't worry about this other stuff, right? We're open for business again. That's what Tilden is saying, and Tilden wins more votes. Tilden wins more votes, but because of the strangeness of our system, there are three states: South Carolina, Louisiana. And the one that's always the problem, Florida. It's always Florida. The three of them uh, are so close in those states. So Tilden wins big in states like Texas, because black people aren't able to vote now in 1876 because of local ordinances, what we've mm -hmm. talked about. But these three states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, are really close. And the strangeness of our electoral system is that if you win the state by one vote, you get all the electors. And that's how you can lose the popular vote and win the electoral vote. That's what happened with uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton. He barely won Pennsylvania. Trump did in, he, he did not win it in 2020. In 2016, he barely won Pennsylvania. He barely won Wisconsin, and he got all those electoral votes. So Hillary could have more total votes, and Trump could have more electoral votes. Well, Hayes is on the cusp of this. And in those three states, and I'm not the first historian to say, to say this, in those three states, we don't know who won. Because in those three states, it's so close, and there is a question about spoiled ballots. There's also a question about people who voted twice or three times, because there was fraud then. In each of those states where it's disputed, you have a Republican governor who has lost the election, but is still governor and has to certify who won. Each of the Republican governors certifies that Hayes won. So even though Hayes has 40,000 fewer votes, Hayes is actually named president. The Democrats don't accept that. And there's talk of insurrection, of violence uh, at that moment. At that time, inaugurations occurred in March. From November until February, there's no agreement because Congress has to certify and the Democrats will not certify in Congress, right? All the things we lived with in 2020, 21 are, are happening at that time, right? We, it's amazing that we forget this history mm -hmm. right, until it sort of smacks us in the face. Uh, so an electoral commission is created. This is where Ted Cruz got that stupid idea in January of 2021. You remember everyone, he said he wanted to create an electoral commission and he said, because it, it worked so well. No, Ted, it didn't work. In <laughs> fact, it's the opposite. Right, he had it entirely backwards. I sent a note to his office actually about this. <laughs> I did. Anyway, I mean, you should at least we should at least expect our elected officials to get the facts right, right? So the electoral commission is created. There are 15 members of the commission: five from the Senate, five from the House, five from the Supreme Court. Eight of whom were Republicans, seven of whom were Democrats. How do you think the commission came out? Eight said that Hayes, the Republican, won. Seven said that that uh, Tilden had won. So that doesn't resolve things. Right. 
So in the late February days, just days before the inauguration, there were negotiations that happened behind the scenes, uh, and a group of Republicans and Democrats are able to come together in Congress, and they agree that Hayes will be president, but in return, Southerners will get a promise to withdraw all federal efforts at civil rights enforcement in the South. And this is what's really interesting, too. More money from the federal government to go to the South for agricultural supports, for, in, for infrastructure. And that's the world we live in today, too, right? Uh, most of you in this room know, right? The states that are most anti-federal government actually get the most federal money. This is the story of Phoenix. There's no Phoenix without federal investment. This is why the military bases are put in the South yeah. with Confederate names. It's all this, it's all this pork barrel politics. So Hayes then becomes president, but he's in a sense restricted as president. That's why we get the Posse Comitatus Act, because the Posse Comitatus Act is, is in a sense enshrining this agreement. Posse Comitatus Act says we can't use the military to enforce the law in the South. Can I use the military to enforce the law within our territory? The South refuses to give the military a budget until they agree to that. So Hayes becomes president, but it's a hamstrung presidency. And that's why most of us in this room don't know who was president from Hayes until Theodore Roosevelt. 35 I wanna, years. I want to get you want to get to that. That's good. Sure, sure. Thank you. Because I have one more question no, related no. directly so, to that. And then sorry. I'm, that I'm was a long open answer. it up for your questions and think about what you'd like to ask. But we do have a microphone to go around, so please use that. Great segue to my last question, sir. I found the character of Garfield to be one of the more interesting parts of Act yeah. Three in yeah. the Reconstruction. Right? I mean, here's a guy who, during his campaign, the early part of his administration, he's picking up the banner again. He's talking about how we've really let too much time go by. We have to provide protection for the South yes. and get it more enabled to become a better part of the Absolutely. Union, right? In fact, you quote him as saying, the wounds of the war cannot be completely healed until every citizen, rich or poor, white or black, is secure in the free and equal enjoyment of every civil and equal right guaranteed by the Constitution and the laws. If I had just picked up the book to that page and not seen the attribution, I would have thought you were quoting LBJ. Yeah, sure. It sounds very much like sure. the language he used it's in the Civil point. Rights Act. a great point. Yeah. Was, and he was obviously hamstrung. Was that the beginning of the end, the Reconstruction? I think so, yeah. That's, that's sort of where I end the story, right? Uh, the story begins with the promise at the end of the Civil War, the promise of Lincoln, the promise of uh, a post-slave society, a post an, an emancipation society, and it ends uh, with um, the assassination, a second assassination. Uh, and in the second assassination, it's not a moment of promise now, it's a moment of decline. And uh, I think that's right, because uh, Garfield is also from Ohio, and Garfield is very committed. Uh, having been in Congress when all this bad stuff that I've just described happens, Garfield is very committed to trying to reverse things. Uh, and he has a vision of a country that will be more united and more focused on uh, justice as well as economic growth. Uh, Garfield is assassinated uh, by Charles Guiteau, a uh, deranged figure. Six blocks that way. Uh, is, it, is it that close? My mm, yeah. National Art, National Gallery of Art. That's the, where the train That's station was. I did not know that. I need to make an extra trip over there in the next two there's days. There's no marker. No, there's no indication of that at all. Yeah. No. There should be. I yeah. think so too. We need to work on that. There should be. But yeah. to maybe not to your point. Right. The, the state of Garfield. Yeah. And how he was thought of at the time. Well, that, I think that's part of what it is, right? I mean, it, it, so, Gar, so Garfield is shot by Guiteau, and he actually dies because of terrible medical care. Uh, a number of our presidents who have died actually died because of terrible medical care. We assume people at the top get better medical care, often not. Uh, he, he died because he actually, his wound was infected. Uh, once, when he was shot, initially a number of doctors stuck their hands, their unwashed hands, into his wound. And so he dies as a consequence of that. It's a gruesome story. I tell a little bit of it in the book. Uh, but after he dies, it's the same problem as happens after Lincoln, right? So the book opens with Lincoln's assassination, and it closes with Garfield's. The first two assassinations in our history. It's interesting. Over 35 years after going about 100 years without an assassination, we have three. Because the third one then is McKinley's in 1901. Um, 
Garfield's uh, assassination brings Chester Arthur to the presidency. Everyone has thought about Chester Arthur as president, right? <laughs> Chester Arthur, like Andrew Johnson, was never supposed to be president. Uh, he was put in as vice president uh, because he was uh, someone close to some of the major figures in the Republican Party in New York. And he was wonderfully corrupt, which is to say he stole money and then gave it to politicians. He was the head of the Customs House in New York, which was the best source of graft. The second best source of graft was the Custom House in New Orleans, right? In the Custom House, I have to explain this to students often, right? Custom House, goods would come in, and the custom officer was the one who collected the tax on the goods, which is how the federal government raised money. There was no income tax. The federal government's money came from duties on trade. So the Customs House officer would look if, let's say, you had a ship filled with, I don't know, shoes and there was a tariff on the shoes, you had to pay him the tariff. But if you had 100 pairs of shoes, he might only report 90 pairs and save and keep for himself the tariff from 10 pairs of shoes. So Arthur was uh, only put on the ticket because of his closeness to New York Republicans. Uh, he becomes president when Garfield is assassinated. Is assassinated. He has no agenda for doing anything in the South. Uh, and then <coughs> after Garfield, you will get the first Democratic president elected since the 1840s, Grover Cleveland. As a Democratic president, uh, Grover Cleveland, actually, that fellow Alexander Watkins Terrell, who I mentioned, Grover Cleveland makes him ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. So now we're going to export the Confederacy uh, as well. So Garfield's assassination is that kind of turning point moment. It's the last time we have someone in office until Franklin Roosevelt, who will be very serious about exactly these issues. What makes Franklin Roosevelt so transformative, transformative is that he comes back to these issues <coughs> in 1933. He comes back to them because of the Depression, and he comes back because he sees an opportunity for the Democratic Party to now have new voters who they'd excluded for so long. That's the beginning of the shift. That is exactly. And, and, and of course, Franklin Roosevelt is the hero and inspiration for Lyndon Johnson. Right. Um, so that, that's very appropriate we're talking about that here. <laughs> yes, it is, indeed. We'd welcome any questions you may have. Uh, my name is Matthew Troy. Um, I report about the Texas Tribune, but this is off the record. Um, I was wondering, um, you mentioned earlier about how a lot of enslaved people during the Civil War were very aware about what was happening. But you also mentioned that many of them uh, were illiterate, most likely intentionally so, so they wouldn't know what's happening. Correct. So can you talk about how they got information at that time? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. And I'm glad, I'm glad you, you work with the Texas Tribune. Sewell Chan's a very close friend of mine. He's a great guy. Um, so um, what slaves were very good at was transferring and passing information by rumor. They had all kinds of methods. Uh, some of this you've, you've seen probably in documentaries recently. Again, it's, it's research from the last 10 years. So as uh, a slave would be delivering something from one plantation to another, they would carry news, and they had very established code language for talking about things so that people wouldn't, their masters and others or their overseers wouldn't recognize this. Why did they develop this? Because it was a mode of survival. One of the things that slaves were always trying to do, they, it was very hard to run away, uh, but it was possible to warn people about things that were going to happen. And one of the survival mechanisms for slaves was to try to build their own community and to be able to be prepared for when the master was going to sell them somewhere or do something of one kind or another to them. So they were very good at transferring information in non-written and in often non-decipherable ways uh, for others. The, the second thing that's come out even more in the research in the last five years uh, is they were very good at listening in to what their masters said and did. And one of the things I realized, this was not originally my research, this is research of other historians, I have to give them credit, is that you know, we, we had assumed, you sort of tell the story sometimes of southern plantation life as if they're slave masters and the slaves aren't there when the slave masters are doing what they're doing. The slaves were pretty astute uh, and often quite manipulative of their masters. They had to be to, to survive. So in many cases, we have a lot of evidence of slaves when they're in the army saying, I learned about this because I overheard my master saying that he had to go into the Confederate Army to defend slavery against the Union Army that was coming to destroy slavery. And so I knew that I wanted to go run to the Union Army. That's what they would say when asked by Union officers, how did you know to come here? So it's as much the listening in to what others say as it is to transferring information from one to another. 
Hi, my name is Don Hennon. I'm here because my, uh, my my brother didn't make it, but he is an LBJ Austin uh, oh. graduate from the, from the mid 1980s. Fantastic! I'm so, glad uh, you're here, Don. Maybe he'll, if, if I know him, he'll walk in in a few minutes here, like well, that. Probably, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, fascinating uh, discussion here, and I wanted to see so much about voting rights and voting exclusion. The law that um, had potential to be passed, but was blocked because. Uh, Democrats couldn't get Cinema and Mansion on board. If you could put that law into context about what I, I don't know a lot of the details of it, but with that, what, what injustices could that uh, yeah. do, could do that? And also, if you could mention in that same context, this may fall to the states. Michigan just passed Proposition Two, which enshrined a not only reproductive rights but also voting rights with Proposition Two in Michigan, and it passed. Yes, um, which really helped uh, change the whole. Uh, context of things in Michigan. So if you could comment on the federal law and maybe possible state constitutional amendments that might help. Terrific question. Thank you, Don. Um, so let me start with the second, because I have talked a lot about the problems of Southern activity to undermine civil rights and state activity to undermine civil rights. Sometimes states are ahead. Uh, when the 19th Amendment passed in, in 1920, when it was ratified in 1920, uh, eliminating gender, sex discrimination for voting, um, Already, I think there were 19 or 20 states that had women voting for more than a decade. And many of them were in the West, actually. Wyoming was one of the first states that had uh, women's suffrage. Um, so in some cases, the states get way ahead. When FDR creates some of the early New Deal legislation, he's actually copying legislation from the state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin had workman's compensation, which is crucial, right, that as someone who, who's hurt at work has some source of um, insurance. Uh, Wisconsin had created that in the 19-teens, and that's one of the early pieces of New Deal legislation. So uh, sometimes the states are ahead, you know, and that's the, 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 the federalist system we have is designed so that you have policy, activism, and creativity, you hope, at both levels. The problem is that creativity can be creative good or it can be creative bad, right? We are remarkably creative in finding ways to prohibit people from voting. Florida, uh, if you are uh, convicted of let's say, selling a minor amount of drugs, and you get a mandatory sentence of three years as a felon, or five years, you never get to vote again. They passed a referendum in Florida saying you should be able to vote, and the legislature found a way around that. They blocked it. Yeah, they blocked it. They had to, because otherwise Democrats would control right. the so, so that's But that's, notice that they're, they're being creative and doing bad things. So, so that's, that's the paradox of our system. We want the states to be creative. We want them to be inventive but we don't want them to do that in a way that violates our basic values. And that is why we have a Bill of Rights, and that's why we should have other amendments to the Constitution that limit the creativity to doing things that fit with our, that fit with our, our values. So you asked then about the John Lewis Act, which is uh, one of two pieces of legislation that passed the House that would create more federal protections, more federal limitations on the creativity of states and denying people the right to vote. That legislation, if it were to pass the Senate, uh, and maybe if we win in Georgia, it might. There's at least a chance if they're 51 Democrats. The problem is we'll have, we'll have to pass the House again. Um, but that legislation would have had a huge effect. It would not have solved all these problems. But it would have done at least three things that are, that are really, really important. First, it would have put a limit on gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is a solvable problem. It is a very solvable problem, right? The way you deal with gerrymandering is you don't let the people who are elected to office choose who votes for them. You create expert panels. And you can create expert panels with principles to try to create the most 5149 districts. That's what I would do. Right? We want the most competitive districts everywhere. So as much as possible, create the most competitive districts. We do this in many cities. Austin has an expert panel that does the districting for the 10 districts in the city. My wife represents District 10. She now represents a little bit of a new district that wasn't the one that elected her, a little bit less of the other, because they've adjusted it based on the based on the census. So it would, it would actually place limits on gerrymandering, uh, that legislation, which would be crucially important. Second, it would require that states have standardized, reasonable identification requirements and registration requirements. So it would limit the things they do to make it hard for people to register to vote. Texas would, would for instance, be in trouble. Our registration requirements violate. We talked about already the time on that and things of that sort. And then the third thing it, it would do is it would uh, provide more avenues for those who have been denied the right to vote or think they're being denied the right to vote to actually go to court 
to investigate and put pressure on the states. Um, so it would give them more legal standing. Uh, a lot of what it's doing, that legislation, is going back to the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was undermined by the Roberts Court. Mm -hmm. This is an opinion Roberts wrote in, in the Holder case, where he said that the Roberts decision was that um, we've, we've dealt with these issues enough. We've, we're beyond the problems of discrimination in voting. And so the Roberts Court ended what had existed since 1965, which was where the Federal Justice Department oversaw any changes in the law. So when Texas wanted to change its voting laws, it would have to get approval from the, from the Justice Department. As soon as that was no longer required, states north and south, not just in the south, started changing their voting laws all the time. And that actually opened the door for the nonsense we had in 2020. Because there wasn't any fraud in 2020, but because of the Roberts Court chase, states were adjusting their voting rules much more quickly. And so that led to this myth that somehow they were adjusting the laws to make it harder for people or to, make, to give certain people an advantage. So it would be huge if we could get that legislation passed. I'm just fearful that without control of the House, I guess that's still not decided, it's going to be hard. Now it, it could pass the Senate, but we'll have the problem in the House. Right. I believe we have time for one more, sir. I'm Keming, a Badger alum, oh, a, a Daily Cardinal writer, oh. too. Uh, I want to write for the Daily Cardinal. Oh, really? Oh, that's it's great paper. It is. Anyway, um, I just wonder if any of the shady characters mentioned in your book have been enshrined into statues and then oh, yeah. subsequently torn down, yeah. as so many have in Terrific past years. Question. Yes. So one of the characters I talk about is a man named Matthew Fontaine Maury, M-A-U-R-Y. Uh, and he used to have a statue on Richmond's uh, Monument Avenue that was just taken down. Maury was one of the leading geographers and oceanographers of his time. He was also the Confederate ambassador to England. And then he worked for Maximilian, for the French-installed emperor, recruiting Confederates to come to Mexico. After Maximilian was defeated, he went back to Virginia. He lived close to his good friend, Robert E. Lee. He became the founder of a university you've all heard of, Virginia Tech which did not admit African-Americans, of course. Um, and then he was offered the presidency of the University of Virginia. He did not move to Charlottesville because that would be too far from where Robert E. Lee was. Um, and and he, he continued to write. At Washington College. At Washington College, exactly. And um, right, which later becomes Washington and Lee. Lee. Exactly. Um, and um, he continued to write. He was a very prominent academic. And he was treated on Richmond's Monument Avenue and elsewhere as one of the great intellectuals of American history. Uh, his monument was taken down, I think, in the year after George Floyd's lynching and after that. Um, so that there's progress there. I'll tell a funny story. Um, one, of the, the, uh, one of the events I did for, uh, for the book was actually an event also co-organized by the LBJ School at, um, in the tower at UT. It was a Clement Center LBJ history event. And it was in, maybe some of you have been in this room, there's a very ornate room on the second floor of the tower. We used to study there. That's, yeah. That was when we used to the study. The old science library. Right, right across. The, yeah. so, so I'm standing there giving, giving this talk to a lot of uh, UT alums. The audience is maybe I don't know, 150 or so UT alums for the most part. And I look up, and there's actually a quote from A.W. Terrell, from Alexander Watkins Terrell, on the ceiling in that room. It says, our university is for God and country. Really, for God and country. Uh, he's on that, that room commemorates the history of the university, and he was the person who wrote the legislation, so that's why he's quoted up there. I had never, I'd been in that room many times, I had not looked in that corner, I had not thought about who Terrell was, and no one in the audience knew who that was, so. Um, good plant. It was, a, it, was a very, it was a very good, it was a very good plant. Uh, I'm trying to get my friend Jay Hartzell to, to change the ceiling now. I don't yeah. know if that's gonna happen, but I think that quote should be taken out. Well, Jeremy, this has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Me too. Please join me in saying thank you. Thank you. You suggest that the two decades after Lee's surrender were the years when the seeds of voter suppression, segregation, and vigilantism were sown. Now, if you were given the power to travel back to that period and impose your will on one policy aspect of that era, 
what would it have been and how might it have changed our current situation? I think, uh, first of all, that's a key question because it's our job as scholars to help us rethink the past, not to play Monday morning quarterback, but to take lessons from the past that we can use today. That's what this great series you've organized, Bill, is about. And one of the big lessons for me is that there was at least one thing that could have been done that would have made a huge difference that was very doable at its time. And that was applying the third provision of the 14th Amendment which prohibits those who have taken an oath to the U.S. government and violated the Constitution from ever serving in federal office again. That should have applied to all the leaders, not all the soldiers, but all the leaders of the Confederacy, from Jeff Davis through uh, various military leaders, including the individuals I describe in Chapter 3 of the book, these individuals like Alexander Watkins, Terrell, uh, Joseph Shelby and others who were Confederate leaders who went to Mexico, joined Maximilian's army. We talk about this a bit in, in the mm-hmm. discussion and that, that, that everyone's heard and come back after committing treason twice and get elected and become leaders in many parts of the country and implant Confederate policies, policies we still live with today. If they had been prohibited from serving in office, I don't care whether they went to jail or not, but if they had been prohibited in serving in office, as they should have been under the 14th Amendment. If they had not been pardoned by Andrew Johnson, we would have had a very different set of voting laws in Texas, in Georgia, in South Carolina, and things would have looked different. They would not have been perfect by far, but things would have been different. I think this history reminds us, Bill, that we have to apply the law and hold people accountable, whether they are generals or presidents or whomever they are. The law must apply to everyone. It didn't after the Civil War, and we've paid an enormous price for that. I think that was one of the more enjoyable parts of the book for me. And we talked about this, as you said, that evening. And and one thing that we didn't get the chance to explore so much, but I think is particularly prescient from your book. How would you say that this period shaped the nature of the Democratic Party, maybe before LBJ's presidency? And, And are there any remaining aspects in today's version of the party? It's such a good question, Bill, and and you sent it to me in advance, and I was thinking about it all day because it's it's such a good question. I I deeply believe that we're not prisoners of history, but we never escape it either. And certainly, uh, as LBJ himself repeatedly pointed out, the party that he came into uh, as a young man drawn to FDR in the 1930s, the Democratic Party he came into in Texas was still the party of the Confederacy. Southern Democrats were proponents of Jim Crow. They didn't just put up with it. They actively encouraged it. Uh, There were still lynchings, of course, going on in our country uh, until the 1950s. And some could argue they've continued in different ways. So certainly Lyndon Johnson inherited the Democratic Party of the 1870s, which was a segregationist, violent party toward Uh, diversity toward African-Americans, toward Jews, toward others. And he, like Franklin Roosevelt, was instrumental. I think Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt were the two most important figures in pushing the Democratic Party, and Johnson did more of this than even Roosevelt, into pushing the party to, in some ways, abandon its Jim Crow past and to embrace civil rights as it had not before. And what's diabolically disastrous about this is that Johnson was heroic in this effort, but then the Republican Party uh, saw value for itself, saw advantage in taking over many elements of the Jim Crow uh, anti-integrationist elements of the uh, Democratic Party. Barry Goldwater, for example, in 1964, ran against school integration. So that's the tragedy of that moment. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, in some ways, helped to uh, get Jim Crow mostly out of the Democratic Party, not entirely, but mostly out of the party. And it's been a long process in having Hakeem Jeffries as the first African-American Democratic uh, minority leader in the House will be will be an example of how we have made indeed progress now. And it's taken a long time. I think this is something that Nancy Pelosi herself has, has been saying. There's still elements, though, of the old Jim Crow in the Democratic Party. It's taken a long time for the party to really address all of those issues. Uh, but beyond that, I'd make two other points. Um, I think the Democratic Party has had a problem from the 19th century to today with executive power. Uh, Republican presidents have been able to use the power of the presidency more effectively in some ways for their policy goals. It doesn't mean they've been better presidents, but they've been able to use presidential power. Uh, it's the paradox of having Republican Party figures like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis who claim they're anti-federal but yet want strong presidents. 
and Democratic presidents have been have had trouble getting the party behind them. Because I think going back to the Civil War, Bill, there's a Democratic Party aversion to executive power or fear of executive power. And uh, I think that's a challenge the Democratic Party still has. It's a challenge Joe Biden is dealing with now. And then the other point I'd make is the point on economic policy. I don't think that de Democrats have been remiss in thinking effectively about national economic policy, but they have been perceived since the Civil War as the party that does less national economic thinking. And voters seem to recurringly give the Republican Party more credit as the party of the economy, as the party of business. I don't think that's true, but I think that's an inherited assumption that we've taken, honestly, from the 1860s, where the Republicans were the party of business and the Democrats were not the party of business. And that still seems to remain. For, for some stubborn reason, we still seem to see those parties uh, in, in these two ways. That hasn't changed. And I think that's something Democratic leaders have to work on changing. They have, people have to see that the Democratic Party has actually consistently been responsible for the moments of greater economic growth. And the Republican Party has been responsible for the moments of greater debt acquisition in our, in our society. Isn't that interesting how something's flipped and something's never changed? That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you again. And I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Again, the title is Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for joining us. Come back to join me for our final episode in the coming weeks. For more insightful episodes of Policy on Purpose, please visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.